This morning is our second Advent message of the year, and we will be looking at Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. These are the words of God. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. But while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So all this was done, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated, God with us. Then Joseph, being aroused from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him, and took to him his wife, and did not know her till she had brought forth her firstborn son, and he called his name Jesus. Our gracious Heavenly Father, open these glorious words to us in all of their fullness and glory and richness and power. Let them wash over us, Lord, to make us full of your gospel, full of your glory, full of your character, full of your light, that we might be your faithful servants in this day and time. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you remember from last week, Matthew left us with two mysteries. First, how can it be that Jesus has accomplished what neither Abraham nor David nor any of their sons has been able to accomplish over the centuries. And second, how can Jesus be the root and branch of David? A branch is not a root. One comes from the other. How can Jesus be both? In answer to those mysteries, Matthew tells us in so many words, you have to understand how Jesus came to be born. And that is what he sets out to tell us in our text. Now, as with most all birth stories, the story of Jesus' birth is mostly about his parents, his mother Mary, his adoptive father Joseph, how they came together, and the events that led up to Jesus' birth. And Matthew brings us into the story at a very poignant moment with an absolutely stunned Joseph, confronted with the fact that his betrothed Mary is pregnant, which under every other similar circumstance in the history of the world can only mean one thing. Mary has been unfaithful to Joseph. She has been with another man whose child she is now carrying. Now, to appreciate the situation, you have to understand betrothal and marriage under the Old Testament law and Hebrew custom. It was very different from our modern custom of engagement 
followed by a wedding ceremony where vows are taken, and then the engagement in our modern world can be terminated any time by either party if either one of them happens to change their mind. In the ancient Hebrew world in which Joseph and Mary lived, the marriage vows were exchanged at the betrothal, which involved a formal ceremony in front of witnesses. And once betrothed, the couple was married for all intents and purposes, except for coming together and consummating the marriage, which would occur at the time of a separate celebration known as the wedding feast, which would usually be about a year after the betrothal. Now, this is why our text refers to Joseph as Mary's husband in verse 19, and Mary as Joseph's wife in verse 24, even though the wedding feast had not yet occurred, and thus they had never come together as husband and wife. This explains why unfaithfulness after betrothal was considered adultery, and also why betrothal to end one required divorce. So it was during this intermediate time between the betrothal and the wedding feast that Joseph learns of Mary's pregnancy. Now in Luke chapter 1, it gives us some extra details about the timing of this matter. Luke tells us that when the angel Gabriel appeared to Mary and announced that she would conceive in her womb the Son of God, by the power of the Holy Spirit, the angel also told her that her elderly cousin, Elizabeth, who had been barren her entire life, was now with child and was in fact in the sixth month of her pregnancy. Elizabeth, of course, is going to give birth to Jesus' cousin, John the Baptist. Now, when Mary hears of her cousin's pregnancy, she is so excited that she hurriedly travels from her home way up in the north in Galilee, Nazareth, uh, which is north of Judea. She's going to travel all the way to the south, down south of Jerusalem by seven or eight miles to the little town of Bethlehem to see her cousin Elizabeth. And she remains with Elizabeth for about three months and then returns to Nazareth. So by the time Mary gets back, she is about three months pregnant, which means she is showing, and it becomes obvious that she is pregnant. So you can imagine the shock and dismay that Joseph would feel on learning this news. What is he to do? Well, under the rabbinical interpretation and custom of that day, divorce was not only warranted under these circumstances, it was expected. But even if it weren't, can Joseph really go through with this marriage? After all, there is another man in the picture, and Mary is carrying his child. And if this was a forcible rape-type situation, then certainly Mary's father would be pressing formal criminal charges against the man. But the fact that her father is not doing so has to mean that Mary was a willing participant 
in the sexual act leading to her pregnancy. And so there is no conclusion for Joseph to draw other than Mary's love, despite her oath at the betrothal, is not for Joseph. It's for some other man who is the father of this child. And even if Joseph were to set all of that aside and just go through the marriage, Mary is already pregnant. And if he goes through with the marriage, what is everybody going to assume logically? That it is Joseph's child, which means it was Joseph who violated Mary, which will bring disgrace upon him, the only innocent party and victim in this whole affair. So it would appear. So divorce is a certainty. There's no way around it. Joseph's only real choice is concerning how the divorce is to be carried out. Should Joseph take the formal route, which would mean making a public formal accusation against Mary, which would result in a public trial and a public conviction and the certainty of lifelong disgrace for Mary at the very minimum? Or should Joseph handle it privately by writing out a certificate of divorce, giving it to Mary in front of two or three witnesses whom Joseph knows and can trust? Because people are people, and they're going to talk over time. There's no way getting around that because Mary is pregnant and she's going to have the child. But at least a private divorce would not subject Mary to the kind of public proceedings that would come with a formal charge. And so scripture tells us that Joseph, being a just man and not wanting to make her a public example, decides to put Mary away secretly. Verse 19. Note that scripture says specifically that this course of action was because Joseph was a just man or a righteous man, just and righteous, both come from the same root word in the Greek and they both mean the same thing. But that's not the normal way that we would think. We would think that Joseph being a merciful man chose that course of action. We would not think that it is justice or righteousness that would lead uh, Joseph to take this course of actions. But we have to remember that biblically, justice and mercy are not enemies. Biblically, justice and mercy grow from the same tree, which is the tree of biblical love. So this is why Jesus, for example, tells us that all of the law and the prophets, that would be all of justice or righteousness and all of mercy, hang on the same two great love commands. Love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Matthew 22, 37 through 40. This is why Jesus refers to justice, mercy, and faith as the weightier matters of the law. Matthew 23, 23. So how is it that justice, mercy, and faith all grow as major branches on the same tree of love? Well, you have to remember that biblical love 
is seeking another's objective good according to God's word and will. Biblical love is seeking another's objective good according to God's word and will. So when you have God himself showing love, you have to remember that God has promised to redeem us, starting with Genesis 3.15 and then many times thereafter. He has promised to crush the serpent's head. He has promised to deliver us from the guilt and condemnation of Adam's sin and ours. He has promised to deliver us from the reign of sin and death. And you see, once God has promised... Keeping his promises is something that righteousness requires. This is why we see Daniel, for example, praying in Daniel 9.16. O Lord, according to all your righteousness, let your anger and your fury be turned away. That's not the way we think. We'd go, no, 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 we don't want any righteousness. According to all your mercy... Let your anger and fury be turned away. That's not what Daniel prays. He prays biblically. What he's really saying here is, O Lord, according to all your promises, keep your promises. Let your anger and your fury be turned away. And when it comes to man, we are to seek the objective blessing of God in heaven and the objective good of our neighbor. Seeking the objective blessing of God in heaven always means trusting and submitting to his word and will. Seeking the objective good of our neighbor always means seeking to see them trust and obey the word and will of God and so be under God's blessings. So sometimes loving our neighbor means tough love. Sometimes it means not sparing our neighbor or a loved one from the consequences of their actions because that would not be for their objective good. Perhaps they have dodged the consequences of similar actions many times so that they are just being enabled and encouraged down a road that is neither glorifying to God nor good for them. But sometimes seeking the objective good of our neighbor or a loved one means compassion. It means sparing them the full consequences of their actions because the circumstances indicate that compassion will actually encourage them down the right road. It always turns on the particular circumstances of a particular situation evaluated in light of the ways and the wisdom of God. So this is why we will see God say things like this, Zechariah chapter 7, verse 9. Execute true justice. What does it look like to execute true justice? God tells us, show mercy and compassion everyone to his brother. Do not Oppress the widow or the fatherless, the alien or the poor. Let none of you plan evil in his heart against his brother. You see how all those things are mixed together under the love of God in the scriptures. That's the way we need to cultivate our thinking. Now, in Joseph's case, he doesn't have all of the facts, not initially anyway. Nevertheless, with the facts as he understands him, 
understands them, we see him make a decision that is consistent with the glory of God, the objective good of Mary, and the community. Joseph here is the only victim. And Mary has a spotless reputation and record previously to this point. Under these circumstances, objective good, objective love does not obligate Joseph to file formal criminal charges against Mary, nor to prosecute her to the full extent of the law. I mean, the truth about Mary is going to get around. There is no way for Joseph to spare her from that. But Joseph does not have to broadcast it, nor to do anything else to make the consequences even worse. But thanks be to God, before Joseph actually acts on his decision, an angel of the Lord appears to him in a dream, and the angel tells him not to be afraid to take Mary as his wife to himself, because the child conceived within her is of the Holy Spirit, verse 20. Now, in the Greek, this is even more powerful, because it's clear in the Greek that the angel is not just telling uh, Joseph to dutifully soldier on and, and go through the formal steps of the marriage. The angel is telling Joseph here to wholeheartedly embrace Mary as his wife. And the angel tells him that Mary is going to bring forth a son and Joseph is to name him Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. Verse 21. Now there are two very important aspects to this naming. The first is that it is Joseph in particular who is to name the child. In other words, Joseph is not only to wholeheartedly embrace Mary as his wife, he is also to wholeheartedly embrace the child as his own. In other words, Joseph is to adopt him as his own son. Now, in that day, naming a child was the responsibility of the father. And by naming this child, Joseph would be officially acting as his father recognizing him as his son, thus officially adopting him. Now, why was this important? Because it was important to place Jesus legally within the line of David. You see, the fact that Jesus' mother Mary was a blood descendant of David, a fact which Luke establishes in his gospel, that was not enough because legal status came through the father. And as Jesus is not begotten of any human father, but miraculously by the Holy Spirit, it was important for Joseph to adopt him, thus establishing Jesus legally as a son of David and an heir to the throne. Notice how the angel in verse 20 addresses Joseph. Joseph, son of David, He is speaking to him in his legal capacity as an heir to the throne of David. So God is calling upon Joseph as a son of David legally and for purposes of throne inheritance to constitute Jesus as a son of David by adopting him. And Joseph is going to do that by naming him according to the word of God. Now it's important we understand also that adoption in this matter 
was not some shabby second-hand way of establishing legal standing or inheritance. It was very common for men of high position in that day to adopt a fully grown son as their legal heir. In other words, they would adopt someone whose character and potential was already proven. Very common in that day. They would adopt a fully grown son, somebody totally unrelated to them. They would adopt them as their legal heir. So there's nothing shabby or second-rate going on here when when Joseph is naming Jesus and thus adopting him. The second important thing about the naming of Jesus is the name itself. The angel says the child is to be named Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Verse 21. Now Jesus is simply the Greek version of the Hebrew name Joshua. So for all the Jews, that's who they think of when they hear Jesus' name. They think of Joshua, and of course they're going to think of Joshua, the great leader of Israel, who brought the people through the river Jordan on dry ground into the promised land and then led them in conquest over the seven nations of the land who were larger and more powerful than Israel. The name Joshua means Jehovah is salvation or Yahweh is salvation. You have to remember the original Hebrew was written with consonants only. The vowels were left out. The reader had to supply that. So modern scholars differ on exactly how the ancients pronounced the name of God. But All that we see Joshua doing in the Old Testament in bringing God's people into and in conquest of the promised land, all of that was part of God's salvation or redemption of Israel. Salvation and redemption mean the same thing. They both mean to deliver. So God's salvation or redemption of Israel was God's deliverance of Israel from bondage to Pharaoh. All that Joshua did in the Old Testament regionally in Egypt and Palestine, Jesus is going to do in the New Testament at the cosmic level. Jesus, Joshua, Jehovah is salvation through his life, death, and resurrection and ascension is going to deliver his people from the condemnation they were helpless to get out from under, from the debt they were helpless to pay, and from the bondage they were helpless to escape. Furthermore, Jesus, through that deliverance, is going to restore them to their original status as royal sons and daughters of God, the King of all creation. And they're going to restore them to all of God's glorious original intentions for them. All of the earth as their inheritance, not just seven nations in Canaan, but all the nations and rule over all the earth in God's name. All of that is what is pictured by the historical events of Israel's exodus from Egypt and her conquest over the nations of Canaan under Joshua. And all of that is why Jesus must be Emmanuel. He must be God with us, born of a virgin. 
Verse 22, all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. You see, if Jesus were born or begotten of a human father, then he would be a son of Adam, and he could not be the new, the eschaton, the final, the eternal Adam. If he was our son of Adam, he would be born subject to sin and death, and therefore he would himself be in need of redemption. The only way of salvation is for God by his spirit to beget a son by a virgin, and thus for God the son himself to become the son of God like us in every way except for sin, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage, Hebrews 2, 14 and 15. And that brings us back to the name Jesus, Joshua, Jehovah is salvation. The name of our Savior tells us that Jehovah not only saves, he is salvation. And this is so important. This is one of the most precious truths of the gospel, and yet modern Christians realize it so seldom. God does not save us in spite of being God. God does not save us even though he is God. He saves us Because he is God. In other words, the incarnation, the cross, the grave, the resurrection, the ascension, all of that is fully consistent and is in fact an outworking of the divinity and character and divine life of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in eternity. It is an outworking and expression of the life that has been shared and lived by the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit eternally. This is so important because what it means is the gospel doesn't just tell us what God did. It tells us who He is. This is why it is so significant that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit eternally. If God is just a monad, if he is just simply a solitary person living alone in eternity until he creates, then the personalness of God, the relationalness of God, the love of God, all of these things cannot be of God's essence because they cannot begin until he creates. And there's something else for him to love, to relate to, to be personal with. That's all something God did one day, but it tells us nothing about who he is or what he's going to do tomorrow. Perhaps he gets bored with us tomorrow. But because God is eternally Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, God is inherently personal. God's relationalness is part of his essence just as much as his omnipotence is. And God's love goes as deeply within his godness 
as his omnipotence and his omniscience. And so the gospel tells us who God is. Now, God is infinite and we are finite and we can never fully take in all that is God. But this we know is that all the infinite glory of God that we shall see and learn and experience into eternity future, none of it will be inconsistent in the slightest way of God who is salvation, who has shown himself. This is Paul's point in in the text that Jeff used this morning for our gospel word, Philippians 2, starting at verse 5. Christ Jesus, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. And the word literally means a thing to be clutched like treasure. Think of Gollum with his precious. Gollum is not going to let go of his precious. So the way the ancient world thought of the uh, divinity of God is that having any contact with the material world, certainly becoming part of the material world through the incarnation, absolutely unthinkable, inconsistent with God's divinity, certainly beneath God's divinity. The point here is that, no, that's not true. Jesus didn't become one of us in spite of being God. His divinity was no impediment whatsoever. When he became one of us and went to the cross, what he's saying is, that's who God is. That's him. That's who he is. And so in the gospel, in Christ, in the cross, in the grave, in the resurrection, God has come out from behind the curtain. He's not behind the curtain. He's revealed himself fully. We know who he is. And who he is is this one who has shown this supreme love and laying down his life for us to restore us to himself. That is who God is and that is who we are called to be like, which is why it says, have this attitude in yourself, which was also in Christ Jesus. It's why Jesus says, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Acts 20, 35, how can that possibly be true? That's one of those beautiful statements that everybody loves and nobody thinks about because if you think about it and you take God out of the picture, that's insane. If you take God and the gospel out of the picture, Life is a zero-sum game, and more for you means less for me. And it cannot possibly be better to give than to receive. No, it's better to get than to give. It's better to win than to lose. It is only because being more blessed to give than to receive, it is only because that's the divine life of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in eternity, that it can be true here. It's only because that is the divine life between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and because that God has promised to each one of you and me that he will preside over everything in history so that it all works to our good. It is only in that context that it can be true. 
that it is more blessed to give than to receive because the God who is the gospel is the one running the world who made us and is calling us to be like him. So to come back to our text, Joseph's God-sent dream arouses him from sleep and once awake, he acts right away to do what the angel said and to take Mary, his wife, to himself, verse 24. Any delay at this point would have subjected Mary to increasing public shame because her pregnancy is increasingly visible and the talk will spread like gangrene. Now, just think about what God is calling Joseph to do here and how this is a picture of the divine life we were just talking about. It's a picture of what God, Christ does for us in the gospel. Mary is obviously pregnant before she and Joseph have officially come together. So avoiding shame at this point is really not possible. At this point, it's just a matter of who is going to bear the shame. If Joseph does not take Mary to himself, it will be assumed that Mary has been unfaithful to Joseph and she will bear the shame. If Joseph does take Mary to himself, it will be assumed that the child is Joseph's and he will bear the shame. What Joseph does here and what God is calling him to do is to end Mary's guilt and shame in others' eyes by taking it upon himself. And that is exactly how Christ saves us by taking our sin and disgrace upon himself. Isaiah 53, verse 4, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. But whereas Joseph took to him a wife who was apparently guilty, but in fact innocent, Jesus took to himself a bride who really was guilty, and chronically so. Furthermore, whereas Joseph's bride came to him gladly, Mary was glad to be received. Jesus' bride rejected him. John 1 verse 11, he came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. And the Greek word for receive in John 1 11, there is the same word that the angel uses with Joseph. Jesus came wholeheartedly to receive his bride, and she, we, rejected him. Jesus had to die under the death penalty that was hanging over his chronically adulterous bride, then rise from the dead, then put his own spirit within this adulterous bride, thus giving her a new heart just so she would receive him and be saved. Now that's a love story. This is the story Paul tells in Romans 7, a passage that so few understand. The woman who has a husband is bound by the law to her husband as long as he lives. But if the husband dies, she is released from the law, the marriage vow of her husband. 
So then if while her husband lives, she marries another man, she will be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. She's free from the marriage vow. So that she is no adulteress, though she has married another man. Who is this first man and who is this second man? He answers, therefore, my brethren, you also. Who is this bride he's talking about? You also, us. You have become dead to the law, the marriage vow, through the body of Christ. Christ is the first husband. He's the one that has to die so that we're released from the marriage vow that we violated over and over. Well, then who's the second husband? It's Christ risen. That you may be married to another, to him who was raised from the dead. That you might bear fruit to God. Jesus is the first husband who was betrayed and cheated on. Who must die to release us from that guilt? Then rise from the dead, put his spirit in us so that we now have his heart just so that we will receive him and the salvation that he has died to purchase for us. Now that is a love story. And that's the story the Bible tells from the beginning till the end. Finally, we are told that once Joseph took Mary to himself, he did not know her till she had brought forth her firstborn son, and he called his name Jesus, verse 25. This means that for a husband, Joseph here, there was no taking. There was only giving. Like Jesus, Joseph's fundamental disposition of heart is not my will, but thy will be done. Like Jesus, Joseph's goal is not to be served, but to serve and to give his life for his wife and his adopted son. Joseph showed in his life what Paul says is the thing that really matters, faith working Through love, Galatians 5, 6. Joseph lived by faith, not by sight. He trusted God. He did not lean on his own understanding. He was a man of quick obedience. His orientation was God first, others second, and self firmly in last place. We don't think much about Joseph. People down through the centuries have thought very little about him, and what they have thought about him has been inaccurate. He has not received much credit at all. Most times through church history, he has either been ignored or he's been pictured as a doddering old fool. But if we just pay attention to what the text actually tells us, we realize Joseph was nothing of the sort. Out of all the men who have ever lived, Joseph, this carpenter, was handpicked by God to raise his only begotten son. And we see that this man was a godly man of true strength. He was a faithful man, he was a just man, and he is a model for us. Every Christian man today should enroll in the Joseph School of Biblical Masculinity. We live in a society that's forgotten what masculinity even is or looks like. This is it. This is what it looks like. 
By this kind of masculinity, reflective of God, Joseph took Mary to himself. And by that same kind of godly masculinity, Jesus himself went to the cross for us. May God give us a revival of such masculinity today. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.